Well, thank you. It is a wonderful uh, privilege to be with you all. Uh, I have really immensely enjoyed getting to know Randy. Uh, we had him out, as he mentioned, to do our, one of our parenting conferences. It was a so, total delight. I got to cook a little bit with him at council in Florida last year. We're, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to cooking with him some more tomorrow night. And uh, a little bit about me uh, that would be useful to know. I um, uh, he mentioned I went to NSA back in the early days, I think the third year of the college's existence, and um, then graduated, went on, did some uh, graduate studies in philosophy at Gonzaga University and then at, at RTS in Orlando, uh, where I was a Northwest boy down in the swamp country of Orlando. That was a wild time. I really, that, that was, uh, I had a great time going to school there. Um, and after I graduated, I married my wife, and I moved back to Moscow, where I worked as Dr. Peter Lightheart's assistant for a number of years, and taught at New St. Andrews College. I've taught at New St. Andrews College for almost 20 years now, 18 years now, and I have taught uh, philosophy and theology, and a class called gastronomy, which is all about food and culture. And so one of the things that I'm going to do over the course of this weekend is give you a little bit of an insight into the, the things that I teach in that class. Wanted to kind of give you a taste, as it were, of what, uh, what I teach with regard to food. That class I've taught for 10 years. And what's the really funny thing about that particular class is I've had more people tell me that that class changed their life than I did about my theology class. I don't know what that tells me, it tells you about me as a teacher, but that class was uh, every, every year that it, I offer it, I understand from the students that you have to wait until midnight of the day that registration opens and you have to register within the first minute of it being open to be able to get a spot in the class. So students race because they want to be a part of that, that class. And it's about food, which is a little surprising to me. When I first started teaching the class, I thought this is going to be a fun class. Uh, I'm interested in food. I want to learn more about it myself. And so a class about food seemed really interesting. I was not prepared for how life-changing it would be for students. So that's a little bit about what I'm going to be talking about this particular, uh, this, this weekend as we go through it. In different aspects, I'll get into it a bit more here as I get into the first lecture talking a bit about what we're going to be doing. Uh, I am married. My wife, Sarah, also went to New St. Andrews College. We have seven children. Blaze uh, is our oldest, 16. Ella is 13. Mary Blythe is 12. Giles is 10. Magdalene is eight, um, Nils is five, and we have a little girl named Pearl who is just one year old. She's a, so uh, I, they are very sad that they can't be, they always wish they could travel with me and go everywhere I go. When I come home, they want lots of pictures and lots of stories. So um, hopefully you all give me some this weekend to tell them. So this first talk is titled Eat This Book, The Surprising Story of Food in the Bible. And uh, I want to begin this particular talk. This is, uh, in a way, an introduction to my class in gastronomy, a 30,000 sort of view, foot view flyover, the story of food in the Bible. I want to begin by a, with a quote from Feuerbach, the, the mater famous materialistic philosopher, uh, of the 19th century. He said, man is what he eats. Feuerbach was a materialist, so what he meant simply was is that man is what goes into his body. He takes 
material in, and that material is transformed into himself, and all man eats is himself. But I think the Bible agrees with Feuerbach. Man is what he eats. So I want you to think for me about a particular incident in the Gospels. Have you ever noticed how prominent food is in the Gospels? Luke, for instance, is the eatingest Gospel that we have. Jesus is constantly eating. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But at the end of Luke's Gospel, you may remember, after the resurrection, all of the resurrection accounts focus on the fact that Jesus eats after He rises from the dead. And it's not insignificant. It's actually really significant uh, moments that the Gospels record. There's lots they could have recorded about the resurrection, but they choose to record some very interesting features about Jesus' life after He rose from the dead, one of which is eating. Think about the story of, the, the, of Jesus' uh, chat with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus meets his disciples. They, of course, are familiar. They're, they're leaving Jerusalem, which is significant, right? Disciples leaving Jerusalem is never a good sign. They're on the way out. Jesus has died, and they're leaving. And they, Jesus asks them, and they, you know, have you not heard what's going on? And so they tell him, and Jesus says, you don't understand. And he begins to give them the greatest sermon that's not recorded in Scripture. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them how it speaks of him. Their hearts burn within them, the disciples said, when they heard the sermon. But it wasn't until they stop and they invite Jesus in, and at the table, as Jesus breaks the bread, that they recognize him. And they go and tell the other disciples, it was in the breaking of the bread that we saw Jesus. And we understood him to be. They heard the word and their hearts burned, but it was in the eating that they recognized and saw Jesus. In the very next chapter, Jesus appears to all the disciples assembled in the upper room and they're afraid of him and they don't know what to make of it. And he asks if they have food and he eats in their presence. In John, at the end of John, you may recall that Jesus comes to the disciples while they're out in the boat. And when they, Peter recognizes Jesus, he tears off his outer coat, dumps, jives in, jumps into the water, swims to shore, and when he gets there, Jesus has prepared breakfast for them. And he sits and eats with his disciples. What's going on with food after the resurrection? I want to answer that question for you. It's not just because Jesus is proving to his disciples that he's not a ghost. There's something more going on. As a way to begin... Listen to what Alexander Schmemann says. Long before Feuerbach, the same definition of man was given by the Bible. Man is what he eats. In the biblical story of creation, man is presented, first of all, as a hungry being and the whole world as his food. Second, only to the direction to propagate and to have dominion over the earth according to the author of the first chapter of Genesis, is God's instruction to men to eat of the earth. Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed and every tree which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for food. 
Man must eat in order to live. He must take the world into his body and transform it into himself, into flesh and blood. He is indeed that which eats, that which he eats. And the whole world is presented as one all-embracing banquet table for man. And this image of the banquet remains throughout the whole Bible. The central image of life. Grasp that. This image of the banquet remains throughout the whole Bible. The central image of life. It is the image of life at its creation. And also the image of life at its end and fulfillment as Jesus says that you eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So let's start by considering how the Bible gives us this image of the banquet table and what it means. In order to do that, we have to start, of course, back in the garden. So feasting and fasting in the garden. One of the things we learn in the early chapters of Genesis is that feasting is prior to fasting. And there's a reason for this. All of creation is given to Adam as communion with God. All of it. And particularly the focus on food is given as a means of Adam communing with God in the food that is given. Behold, I have given every, you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Genesis 2, 7-9. through Food is described as God's first gift to Adam and Eve. And that is incredibly significant because it is the opposite from the Babylonian creation myths. Man in those myths is made to give food to the gods. Man always feeds God. Peter Leiher puts it this way, for the Akkadians that is the Babylonians, man exists to feed the gods. In the Bible, God creates man and then offers him food. In fact, God's gift of food is the climax of the six days of creation. Day six does not end with man's creation as the image of God or with God's command that Adam rule the earth, its oxen and its beast. Genesis 1 ends with a menu and with an exhortation to eat. So God creates a garden in which are all kinds of fruit of every kind that is beautiful to the eyes and Adam is exhorted, first command is to eat. But we're also given a command not to eat. And so the command to eat is followed by a command to refrain from eating, a fast. And Jehovah God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And Jehovah God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man in, in the he put the man where he had formed, and out of the ground made Jehovah God to grow a tree, grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and good for food. The tree of the life of, of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God took man and put him in the garden to dress it and to keep it. And Jehovah commanded the man, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, 
For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now think about this for a minute. The first command that God tells them of something that they should not do is to eat. Have you ever really thought about that? He didn't say, don't kill each other. I mean, it was a marriage. You might have thought they might, he might have said that about them. But he didn't say that. He tells them not to do something that they are commanded to do. They're commanded to eat. But then he tells them not to eat. Just ponder that for a little bit in your own mind. That's a very interesting first command that God gives to Adam and Eve. It's in this context of the command to eat of all of the trees that Adam is commanded to refrain from one tree, to fast. But the fasting wasn't simply to deny Adam one pleasure as if God were some kind of cosmic killjoy. Adam, you can have all those pleasures, but this pleasure, no. This is not for you to have. I think there's actually an incredible principle for parenting here that I'm just going to mention and then have to pass over, but it's worth unpacking in a full talk all of its own later on. Have you ever noticed how God begins by telling Adam and Eve, yes, all of this garden, all of its fullness is given to you. This one tree you shall not eat from. He didn't do the opposite. You can have the one tree, but all the rest of the trees... It's a yes garden with a no tree. I do think that that is an absolutely critical par- principle for parenting. When you raise your children, the principle of life is yes. If your home is a no home with a yes tree in it, you've got it backwards. It should be a yes tree, your yes home. Everything that your children's survey should see, this is for you, it's good, but there are things that you may not do. But the principle is all of it's for you. And it's something is withheld that has the purpose of training and teaching for maturity. In other words, the principle of the garden is grace, superabundant grace that God gives. And even the withholding of the tree has a specific purpose in mind. It was a clue to Adam's purpose and task. Adam was to grow up into maturity, and that required waiting until the proper time. If Adam was to grow up into maturity, he had to learn to believe his father. If he was going to be like God, he had to first begin by submitting to his father and learning to listen to his voice and to interpret the world the way his father saw the world. And so he had to refrain. I often told my kids, this is kind of like me telling my little son Nils, no to driving the car. The car that you see in the driveway is good. It's beautiful to the eyes. It can take one very fast down the road. But the day that thou gettest in the car and drive of it, thou shall surely die. Remember, it's worth saying just to to remind, the tree was not evil. I got into a lot of trouble once at a Baptist conference saying that. Saying that there was nothing wrong with the tree. 
Adam and Eve should have wanted to eat from the tree if nothing other than the reality that it was a good creation of the Lord. The Lord did not, the difference between the tree and saying don't kill each other is the tree was not, there was nothing wrong. That's the, pro, that's the actual the, the, the insight into eating. There was nothing wrong with eating. They were commanded to do it. The tree was not evil. But it was not for them. The Lord said, thou shalt not eat of it. And they had to listen and obey the Lord. You get into all kinds of problems. Just think about it for a short minute. What would happen if we say that the tree was evil? What's the problem with that? Yes, God created it. And that would leave us into the hopeless abyss of saying that God created something that was evil. Everything that God made is good, including the tree. So the task was to maturity, and Adam and Eve had to learn to refrain. They were not God. God was God. And so they had to listen, and they had to obey, and they had to wait. That's what fasting always is about. It's about waiting. Young men and women, I tell this to my, to my congregation a lot this way, fasting is an essential posture of the Christian life. It is not saying that the thing from which you are refraining is bad. You are all, if you are not married, sexual fasters. It's not because sex is bad. It's because there's a right time. And part of maturity is knowing when to say, now is the time. So Adam and Eve had to learn in to grow in wisdom by waiting. That's why they had to fast. Now, I think also... It was designed to show, the reason that they were not given the tree was designed to show them that man does not live by bread alone. He does not live simply by taking the world into himself. By eating and refraining from eating, Adam was confessing that his life came from God. It was a gift given to him by God. And he in order to commune with the Lord through the things that he had given, he had to receive them as a gift from God's hand. He was not God. God was God. And so, by refraining from eating, he was, it was a pledge of faith. He was saying, I do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of my Father. But Satan, however, portrayed the world as a place of scarcity and the Lord as a God of selfishness. He turned the garden on its head. He said that he tempted them by saying that man can, in fact, live by bread alone. In fact, he's better off eating bread alone away from God's house. We don't need the Lord to live. All that we need is bread. Characterize the garden as a place of scarcity. All those trees that God's given you to eat from, that doesn't really matter. He's withheld this one tree from you. That's the one that matters. He's done that because he doesn't want you to be like him. The irony of that's completely upside down. Refraining from eating was the pathway that would make Adam and Eve like God because they would obey him and walk in his ways. But instead, 
Satan cast God as someone who could not be trusted, who withheld the best things for himself, and who was fundamentally selfish. And so they had to be like him and grab something before it got away from them. And so Adam and Eve ate rather than waiting. Adam and Eve took the world as food without God. They said man can live by bread alone. And it's interesting that following this, the curse, the threefold separation that happens is from God, from each other, man and, Eve, man and woman are alienated from each other, and also the separation happens from creation, and specifically from food. Food then becomes a mark of man's exile from the garden. Cursed is the ground because of you, Genesis 3 says. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring for, it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And isn't it interesting that the first sin following Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3, or 4, excuse me, is over food received and rejected, offered up to the Lord. It turns into the first murder. Cain kills Abel over food offered to God. He envied that his brother's sacrifice was offered, was received by the Lord. And he killed his brother because of it. Now after God destroys the world because of sin, His covenant with Noah is again a reiteration of the invitation to eat. Noah does, as all people who are stranded on arks should do when they get off the ark, the very first thing he does is he builds, he plants a vineyard. And of course, he plants a vineyard in hope, right? Because one of the great sayings of winemaking is, one of the things I love about wine, is it's a living thing. We will drink no wine before it's time. It's an eschatological drink, isn't it? You can't drink wine until that time has passed. And the more time that passed, the better it gets. It's an amazing drink. We need a whole other talk just for wine. We'll have to set that aside. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be on every beast of the, of the earth, on every bird of the sky, and everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you as I gave the green plant. Interesting that the covenant centers on food. Now we have to move ahead. There's so much that we could talk about here, but we have to get the whole Bible in before this talk is over. So we have to move ahead. Think about... Israel, stuck in Egypt. In the wilderness, after God delivers His people from Egypt, He leads them through the wilderness. And the main story of God's relationship with Israel, first as a nation, is formed around food, isn't it? Israel grumbles about the fact that God will not give them 
has not provided them water in the wilderness and they're thirsty. And then he has not provided them food and God gives them bread from heaven which follows them for the 40 years that they wander through the wilderness. They are fed with bread from heaven. God's first instructions to Israel is gathered around eating. How to gather bread and how to eat it and how not to gather it on the Sabbath day. How to trust the Lord for the daily bread that would be their provision throughout the wilderness. The first test Israel gives after passing through the Red Sea is to trust the Lord to provide bread, food. They fail that test because they grumble. And finally, they arrive at the mountain which God promised Moses they would come to. And God makes a covenant with them on Sinai. And I wonder how many of you have noticed this. If I asked you what is the most important chapter in the Old Testament, what would you say? You don't have to say it out loud, but just think to yourself. Did any of you choose Exodus 24? Exodus 24, many, many scholars believe, is the single most important chapter in the Old Testament. It is the covenant that God forms with his people on Sinai. It's not the Ten Commandments, the word given, but it's the actual covenant ceremony. It's the first public worship service that's described in Scripture. And it is a marvelous chapter. It's so amazing. I want to read a portion of it to you, and I want you to listen particularly to the end. I wonder if you've noticed this before. Remember, Israel has to gather at the beginning, at the base of the mountain. They've heard the Lord thunder from Sinai. Moses has gone up the mountain and then down the mountain and up the mountain and then down the mountain. And he comes down the mountain and in chapter 19, at the end of chapter 19, he assembles the people and the people hear God speak from the mountain. Chapter 20 is God speaking directly to Israel. The ten words. You remember what Israel's response is at the end of chapter 20? They say, that's it. (laughs) We can't bear it anymore. Moses, go back up the mountain and tell us what God says. We don't want to hear God speak to us anymore. We can't bear it. So Moses does. He goes back up the mountain and he hears God's voice and he hears all the things that are given in chapters 21, 22, and 23. And then he comes back down the mountain and he reports all the words of the covenant to Israel. And this is what happens at the base of the mountain. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel. In verse 10, this is the part that's just crazy. 
and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet, there appeared to be the pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not strike, stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And this is what it says. And they saw God. And they ate. And they drank. That's how the covenant ends. On the, with the elders being brought up on the mountain, they see God and they eat and they drink. No one can see God. That's what's so crazy about this chapter. You can't see God. And it's not as though this particular chapter is just giving us some detail that gets missed elsewhere in the Bible. The text itself recognizes that they should have died. God did not strike them with His hand. Something miraculous happened. It's as though time is suspended. They see God and they eat and they drink in His presence. That is the covenant climax of the covenant. Seeing God and eating and drinking in His presence. That's how the old covenant comes to its final climax. So it should not surprise us when we find out that there's more to come with food later on as we go. Think about the sacrifices of Leviticus. Sacrifice was a food rite. Israel slaughtered animals to feast with God and with one another. Listen to Leviticus 21. They shall, they shall be holy to the Lord, to, holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God. So they shall be holy. So Israel is made holy in offering food to the Lord. No man among the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's offering by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come to offer the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God, both the most holy and of the holy, only he shall not go into the veil or come near the altar because he has a defect so that he will not profane my sanctuary. For I am the Lord God who sanctifies them. Peter Lightheart writes, when an Israelite brought a bull or a goat to the altar, he was bringing bread to the Lord's table. And the Lord received his food as smoke, a, smoothing, a soothing aroma. At times, priests ate portions of a sacrificed animal. And sometimes, non-priestly Israelites received their own slab of meat. Sacrifice includes killing, but the slaughter culminates in communion. That's what happens on the mountain in Exodus 24. The peace offering and the whole burnt offering that's offered, the blood is splashed on the altar, first of all. And whenever you see blood splashed on an altar, what does that mean? It means the forgiveness of sins. God is receiving. The sins of His people are propitiated. Then, of course, the blood is splashed on the people. And they are made holy. And it's that blood, that sacrifice, which then becomes the food that Israel eats with God on the mountain. They are made holy. And they eat and drink with the Lord. But if there's one thing that we know about Israel, it's that Israel forsook the fellowship meal, 
when they said, all that, we, the Lord, all that the Lord has said we will do and we will be obedient. The thing I love about Exodus 24 is that what we find in that chapter when the covenant is being ratified with Israel, when Israel is saying all that the Lord says we will do, the Lord had already made provision for the faithlessness of his people. He knew that they would not be obedient. And in that very ceremony, the blood sanctified them so that they would be made holy. He provided a way for Israel to be holy and to feast with him even when they were in the midst of their sin. So what follows, of course, after this is that Israel doesn't keep the fellowship meal. They are disobedient. And what's significant about that is that Moses had warned that the faithlessness to the covenant would be seen in their eating. Have you ever noticed this before? Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 38, he says, You shall carry much seed into the field and gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither eat nor drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives shall drop off. And if it needs to be more specific, listen to Micah 6, verse 14. You shall eat, but you shall not be satisfied. If there's a consequence of Adam and Eve's original eating in the garden, this is it. This is what exile is. It's eating, but not being satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you, and you shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. But you shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. And yet even in the midst of the hunger and barrenness of approaching exile, Isaiah offers the hope of a saving meal. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 25. The prophet says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. The Lord does things right. He makes sure the wine is well-aged. A feast of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice. Well-aged, refined wine on the day that the Lord delivers His people, they will drink wine that is excellent. Does that remind you of anything? 
when Jesus makes wine, his first miracle, that's what's noted. The steward says to the bridegroom, at normal weddings, people give the good wine first and then the inferior wine second, but you have saved the best wine for now. Best wine is a sign that salvation has come. Did you hear the last part? He will say, on this day, the Lord is among us. He has come to save us. When you eat, you will know that this is the day. This is the day. When you eat the food that I have prepared, the feast of rich wine, marrow, and fatness, the Lord's portion, you get to eat that. And did you notice what the Lord eats? He eats death. Our food. The Lord is the true death eater. He eats death and swallows it, our portion, and we are given the fat of his portion. That's what redemption is in the Old Testament. It's a feast in which God's food becomes ours. And he takes our portion upon himself. And finally, the prophets resound with the promise that when the Lord ends the exile and He restores His people, creation will respond with food. Listen to Joel chapter 2, verse 21 and following. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. And so, O sons of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication, and He has poured out for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. Notice, the threshing floor will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And then I will make up for you the ears that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. My great army which I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Notice the similarity in verse 27 here of what I read in Micah. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. How do you know when the Lord is in your midst and you will never be put to shame? When the earth produces food and you eat and are satisfied. Remember, exile is eating and not being satisfied. When the Lord returns to his people, and this is true not just of Joel, but every single one of the prophets, when the Lord returns to his people, the heavens, the hills bring forth sweet wine. The fields bring forth crops, bread, oil, and wine are given to God's people so that they eat and drink and feast in his presence. That's how you know that I am in your midst, the Lord says. That's just the Old Testament. And there is a lot that we left out. But let's take a look now at the Gospels. 
I think this gives us some indication of why it is that Jesus begins his ministry two ways. First, by refusing to eat in the wilderness. You remember after he is in after his baptism, the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. And the very first temptation that Jesus experienced is the same temptation that Israel experiences in the wilderness. And it's a reiteration of the temptation to eat at the wrong time. But Jesus refuses. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He says what Eve should have said. He also refuses to grumble in the wilderness like Israel grumbled in the wilderness when the Lord fed them. And after that is when the Spirit drives him out of the wilderness. After he goes into the wilderness, he goes out of the wilderness and his first miracle is wine. After the wilderness of not eating, he begins a conquest of eating. And that's what Jesus does for the rest of his ministry. In fact, Luke, interestingly, gives us something that the rest of the Gospels don't. He's the only one who records not just why Jesus comes. In Luke 19, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. But Luke records how the Son of Man came. In Luke 7.34, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. He came to seek and to save the lost, but he came eating and drinking. And, of course, Luke records throughout the rest of his gospel that Jesus began his conquest of eating by eating and drinking with all the wrong people. That's the scandal of Luke. Jesus is constantly eating with the wrong sorts of folk. Why is that the case? Jesus tells us in Luke 14. Jesus wasn't a very orderly and happy dinner guest. Let's just say it that way. Verse 12, And he also went to say to one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have a means to repay you. And you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So when you invite people over, don't invite all of your friends over. This is a hard verse for us to hear, I think. Jesus goes on in the very next set of verses to explain why. He talks about a wedding feast in which all the guests that were invited refused to come. They decline for all sorts of reasons. And so Jesus sends out his servants into the highways and the byways to invite those who have not been invited to come to his table. Of course, he's speaking about the Gentiles in this context. 
Israel is going to refuse the banquet table of the Lord. And so it's going to go out to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are going to come in. We don't even have time to talk about Peter and the great vision of the sheet coming down and him being told to kill and eat. And then immediately Gentiles show up. We'll leave that off to the side. There's obviously more to talk about. But the reason our tables are to be for those who are not invited is because we were not invited. We were not the people who were invited, and God invited us to his table. We weren't the ones who belonged. He went out and got us and brought us in. We were like the young son in the parable of the prodigal who was in the pigsty, not able to eat. And the father says, prepare the fatted calf. My son has come home. Let us rejoice and feast. In John chapter 6, we find Jesus making the startling claim that He is the bread of heaven who must be eaten if one is to find eternal life. In fact, this is so startling that this becomes the first issue in Jesus' ministry that His disciples actually stop following Jesus over. Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in yourself. And the disciples said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And some of them stopped following him. Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Do you notice? So what's the purpose of eating Jesus? Body and blood? So that we might have life in us. Eating is a form of communion. When we eat Jesus, he abides in us. And his life dwells in us. This gives us some clue to what this is all this whole story is about. The reason why eating is so significant is because it's a form of communion. God's life is given to us. We fellowship with him so that we are united to him. That's why we eat. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will also live because of me. This is the bread we came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Here's Here's the key to the whole passage. Jesus tells it. This bread which came down from heaven is not like the bread that the fathers ate in the wilderness and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. And of course, this is consummated in the Last Supper when Jesus makes a new covenant and eats with his disciples, saying that this bread is his body, which is broken for us. And this blood, this wine is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for us, which restores man's communion with God. Just like the old covenant ended with a meal, so the new covenant which is established in Jesus' body and his blood, is a meal in which we feast with him. 
And this is interesting. I had, wish I had more time to talk about this, but my time is over. But I'll just mention this. This becomes the pattern of the Christian table versus the Roman table. If I had more time, I would give you a whole other talk just on Christian hospitality versus Roman hospitality. Generosity versus reciprocity. This is what 1 Corinthians is talking about in chapter 11, the passage that most people really slaughter where they actually think it's a a justification for keeping children away from the table of the Lord. It has nothing to do with that. Paul is talking about the Corinthians eating like Romans rather than eating like Christians. They're eating in such a way that the weak among them are being excluded from the table. In Roman, in Roman convivium, the guest would have the, 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 the host would have the seat of honor, and the guest, uh, the guest of honor would be right next to him. And as you went down the table, your significance would diminish. So you could really tell how important you were depending on where you sat at the table. The food quality would also be graduated depending on where you sat at the table, right? So the problem with the Corinthians is that some are eating and they have excess. They're getting drunk. And some people don't have anything. They're being excluded. This is not the table of the Lord that they're celebrating. This is the Roman table in which it is built upon reciprocity. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's not the Lord's table. The Lord invites people who are not worthy to be there and honors them by bringing them to his table. And so he says, Corinthians, make sure that you wait for one another. This is the Lord's table. It's not your table. Everyone is invited, and I provide for every person who comes to my table. And so every person must be provided for. And so listen to this in that light. When you come together, Paul says, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one of you, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, the other gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? This is an example of those who have much lording it over those who have little. What I say, what shall I, cons- what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The Lord's table taught Christians. There's more written about hospitality by the fathers than almost any other topic. And when we're talking about hospitality, we're not talking about Martha Stewart. We're talking about going and getting babies off the hillside that were left out to die, and bringing them into your home and raising them as your own sons and daughters at your table. You did not deserve to be at the Lord's table, and yet the Lord invited you. And so you go and invite others who do not belong at your table and bring them in and feed them. That's what hospitality was in the first century. It distinguished the church because they not only cared for their own poor, Julian the Apostate had to actually say to his priests, imitate the Christians because they care not only for their own poor, but they care for our poor too. That wasn't a a, sort of a moral uh, reformation program that the church went on. That was an extension of eating at the Lord's table. They went out and invited people to their tables because they had eaten at his table. That's the source of Christian hospitality. Of course, all of this points forward to Revelation chapter 19 when a feast will cap 
the closing of all things, the summing up of all things. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And of course, in the closing pages, it's not just the tree of life makes its appearance, the thing that was barred that Adam and Eve in their fall could not eat from the tree of life. The tree of life makes its appearance. It bears fruit again that they are bidden to eat. And in their eating, in that moment, it says, they shall see God face to face. The same thing that happens on Sinai in chapter 24. Of Exodus they see God and they eat and they drink is what happens at the end of Revelation that's the climax of all things the summing up of all things is eating and drinking in God's presence I summarize it to my gastronomy students this way the gospel according to food can be summarized in this way creation fell in a meal it is redeemed in a meal and it will be consummated in a meal. All of this shows us that man's hunger, which God created in the beginning, remember the quote from Shemem, man was made a hungry being. His hunger will be satisfied. And God himself will provide the food. And we will eat and drink in his presence. And we will see him beloved face to face isn't that that is the most remarkable thing that our own sin does not prevent us from seeing God face to face but the promise of Genesis which was eating in God's presence has now been glorified and every Sunday when we eat at the Lord's table we are anticipating that and every time our own tables we gather around and eat with one another we are extending that same fellowship. We are talking about what is life in the kingdom of God all about. It's about eating and drinking in God's presence. It, the banquet is the sign of life at the beginning of the Bible, and it is also at its end as well. You'll, let me just offer a couple, one thought about this that I want to draw here in closing. I want you to note the central role that creation plays in our relationship with God. Food is not a metaphor. It's a means of communing with our Maker. It was so at the beginning, it is so now, and it will be so in the future. Jesus said that you eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. One of the things that we learn, there are many things we learn about this grand story, but one of the things that we learn is that creation is a means of communing with our Father. Creation is our friend. God gives it to us as a means of enjoying His presence. And it, we will continue to do so. Creation will never vanish from the picture. 
that Jesus rose from the dead and He ate with His disciples in His glorified body is to show us that we will eat and drink in God's presence. And you can be sure that it's going to be the best wine. Which is, of course, why we have to develop our sense of taste so that we can see how gracious, we can taste and see how gracious the Lord is. We will be prepared for that day when we eat and drink with Him in His kingdom. Creation will be glorified. It will still be a means of communing with our Father and the new heavens and the new earth to come. So learn the lesson of this lesson of the table to see your life, your table in light of what God is doing, the grand story that he's telling with the world. Learn to feast this way. Learn to embrace it, to delight in it, and to rejoice in it because it's your inheritance as the people of God. Thank you very much for being so attentive. We're going to stop now, and I think we're going to take a break, and then I have one more talk for you this evening before we're done. Thank you.